Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. When Flannery O'Connor died, she left behind an unfinished manuscript for a novel called White of the Heathen Rage. That manuscript remained largely undisturbed until a few years ago, when O'Connor's estate entrusted it to Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson to edit and prepare for publication. Jessica is my guest on this episode of The Habit. She's an associate professor of humanities at John Brown University in Arkansas, and the author of books on Fyodor Dostoevsky, Walker Percy, and The Devil. I should mention that Dr. Wilson is pretty limited as to what she can say specifically about the O'Connor manuscript that she's working on, but she's ready to talk all day about Flannery O'Connor's creative process and what she has learned by working with the manuscript. Jessica Hooten Wilson, I'm so glad that you made time to, to talk to me today on the Habit Podcast. I am so excited. You, you probably know how much I love Flannery O'Connor, and uh, I'm just uh, really, really uh, thrilled to to get to talk to you about her and about her writing process and whatever else comes out of it. Yeah, it's my favorite subject. Good. Wait, really? Not Dostoevsky? Yeah. Not? Okay. Oh, okay. Well, there's competition, but primarily it's O'Connor always. Okay. Well, um, you are um, editing, um, preparing for publication this manuscript that O'Connor left unfinished. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me some things you learned about her process as you've gone through that process. Yes. Well, I started working in her archives back in 2010 when in um, Billy in Milledgeville, that's right, at the Georgia College State University. Yeah. Uh, O'Connor went to school there when it used to be Georgia Women's College, and uh, she left all her papers uh-huh. to the school, to her alma mater. So, um, And her friend, Billy Sessions, who put out her prayer journal several years ago, he and I met up back in um, 2009. We were in Rome together at the, one of the international Flannery O'Connor conferences, and I was studying Dostoevsky's connections with O'Connor, and he said you really need to take a look at her unfinished papers, which of course I had never heard of before uh-huh. um, because he said they were the most Dostoevskyan of all of her work. Huh. And I thought, Oh my goodness, what? And so I went and, and they had been um, put onto like a old microfilm, but um, you couldn't, it's not like you could check them out or anything. You had to sit there. And so it just, it took several trips back and forth to, to Milledgeville to kind of get a sense of her her manuscripts and uh, what she was doing. And there was, of course, no order uh-huh. to the papers that she had left behind. Some of them were just written by hand, um, some of the notes, some of her ideas. Um, so I really got the sense of, okay, this is what it looks like in process for one of her novels, right? And she she left behind all of the manuscripts for Violent Bared Away. And she gets to see that in process as well. So uh-huh. I, I ran across a... Um, I only had a few, like a couple of hours in that archive, and I uh, just more or less randomly picked up an early manuscript of um, um, "The Life You Save May Be Your Own," and, oh, yeah. uh, and it was so different. There, there was you know there was this whole business about um, Mr. Shiflet when he was a little boy getting mixed up with a phrenologist. 
and, <laughs> yeah. and it was crazy. And and none of I mean it's mm-hmm. all gone. I mean you know, the, the, yeah. none of that survives into the into the published version. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, well, I think that's actually what she does is she does almost character sketches, and a lot of what she left behind in Why the Heathen Rage may never have ended up in the novel. She was, in a sense, just trying to get to know the characters. Uh-huh. So she investigates their past. She tries to think of them as kids. And now in preparing the materials for publication, she's not here to kind of edit those pieces out, and I think people would want to still see that, even though she may not have intended it to be in the, the actual novel, so that we still get a sense of like what it is that she looks at when she thought of these characters, you know, who they yeah. were when they were young and um, really get a sense of why she's, she just writes paragraph after paragraph from all their different points of view, even just trying to figure out who is the protagonist and who's in charge of this narrative um, before zooming in on one perspective. Yeah. Yeah. In her early letters, uh, uh, I mean, the, the letters that she wrote early in the process for Wise Blood, she, she talked as if Enoch were the main character. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And so she was always like doing stories from different characters' points of view. Uh-huh. I mean, in um, if you see the violent bear away, she was actually she wrote these thesis stories where Raber was the main character, and so uh-huh. she was really hooked on the school teacher as a future main character. But of course, in the violent bear away, he doesn't become the protagonist. It's Tarwater. So right. you know, she was always playing with that just to try to figure out whose story she was telling. That's really. Interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I can I can talk about um, why did the heathen rage, you know, at least the, the published version, you get a sense of the several characters that she had in mind, the different ones that she was trying to understand. And so you have um, Walter and Mrs. Tillman and Mr. Tillman and Mary Maud. And these are kind of resurrections of maybe of some characters she's written before. You're talking about um, the, but the, getting... the one that's published as a short story. Right. She published uh, six, six, seven pages out of the 378 pages she left behind. Mm-hmm. So, and she did that. She published that actually the year she died. Okay. I was, I was going to ask you how late that was published. Yes, very late. And she even wrote, no new novel is forthcoming because for her, novels took, you know, the first novel took five years, the next took seven. And she uh-huh. was only 18 months into this process before she passed away. Yeah. Wow. So it had hardly begun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know she really, um, you know, struggled, wrote about struggling with uh, writer's block as she was working on Violent Barrett Away. Um, Mm -hmm. Was she plugging right along on on this one? um, (laughs) No. No, not at all. I mean, she she said at one point that I feel like a squirrel on a treadmill going nowhere, and um, <laughs> which is just a great description. It's very Flannery esque. Yeah. But she she really got stuck with Walter, and she always talked to her characters like they were people. And so she kept saying things like, "Poor Walter, he and I just aren't getting along," and you know, she just she didn't know what to do with him. And it was like hanging out with with friends for her. You know yeah. what? What are, who are these people? And just trying to get to know them was, was part of the writing process um, for her. And so when she, yeah, she had a, she said in, um, when she was writing Violent Bear Away that my novel got an impasse, right? And so when yeah. she went to Lourdes to go to the healing waters over there in France right. and she prayed for her novel instead yeah. of praying for her bones. Yeah, right. And it was, it, it was the same at the end here. So she's, it's 1962 and she's trying to write this Why to the Heathen Rage and it's just, continually blocking her and she can't get anywhere with it. Um, 
And instead of praying in her last days, you know, for, um, you know, am I going to make it through this process? She was constantly praying for this book, for the story. Yeah. Which actually says a lot about her sense of calling in her work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's really what she was... Uh, she wasn't being self-indulgent in that. You know, she, she really felt like, it seems to me, that, that she was praying for that the, the way anybody prays for their calling, for the strength to, to right. fulfill their calling. And, um, yeah. And it's, well, it's really, if you read her... Go ahead, Jessica. I'm sorry to interrupt you. If, if you read her letters, I'm sure you've read her letters, um, where she's writing about her calling and, and her prayers for her calling, and she would constantly ask God for the story, right? Yeah. So she would say, Lord, give me your story. Lord, give me your story. And then she'd write sometimes when she got one, and she'd say, Lord, thank you for your story. I know it came from you. It couldn't have come from anywhere else. And so um, she she was aware of where the story came from and what their purpose was. Yeah. Um, and it's it's also really remarkable to think about the ways she stewarded her strength. You know, what, what physical strength she had in the last few years, she was mm-hmm. really reserving for... Um, you know, for for the physical demands of typing out a manuscript, um, I mean, right. I say the phys- I mean, you know, there there is a there's energy and some you know something like physical energy required just to come up with the with the story itself. But then typing away, did do you know? Right. Did she always? She got a a an electric typewriter toward the end of her life, correct? Mm-hmm. That's that's right. In uh, 1961, she was using it just for correspondence, and then she started typing fiction on it about a year or so later because, again, she was losing strength, and so it helped quite a bit in that process. But she said it types faster than I can think, so she was not too much of a fan. Um, In some ways, we have to wonder how it was actually changing her writing since it was writing so so much more quickly than she could, right? So how would that change what words immediately come to mind and whether you can think of new ones? It's not like she had a thesaurus at her beck and call, right. you know, so what kind of vocabulary would come out if you were just writing so quickly, whereas you were used to writing things by hand? Yeah. Yeah. So many people um, now talk about tapping away on the computer. You know, I, I write longhand and, you know, people say, oh, gosh, that's so slow. I, I couldn't keep up. You know, my ideas go too fast to, to write <laughs> longhand. It's interesting to think yeah. about Flannery O'Connor saying, oh, no, this electric typewriter is going too fast for my ideas. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. She had to slow down. She wanted to think about each word the way a poet would, right? So she's uh-huh. not ever going to just throw the ideas on the page or throw the story out because for her, being a writer meant paying attention to the words and the order they're going in and the syntax. So, I mean, most of her rewriting was at that level. She was constantly attending to the small pieces of writing that made a story and not just the overall structure of the story, right? Yeah. Which was also a concern that you can you can type on an electric typewriter and still get the same um, idea or big plot out, but not if you're trying to really focus on the words themselves. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, how do you, how do you know about when she stopped using the manual typewriter when she started using the electric? Her letters. Just, so in her... Yes, in her letters, she she tells uh, she tells her correspondents, "Can you tell that I'm writing on an electric typewriter? Forgive all the spelling mishaps and okay. things like that." Um, and then she says stuff along the lines of, 
you know, I'm not using it to write fiction yet because it types faster than I can think. And then okay. later she said, to reserve my strength, like, I've got to start writing on this thing. Okay. So she's, yeah, she I just, just remember, tells us. You know, when I was writing my biography of her, I remember being confused about, I, I knew she owned an electric typewriter, but mm-hmm. somehow, and now yeah, it's been a while since I've written it, so I, I was, I didn't know, I knew she was, I knew she had an electric typewriter she wasn't using. Mm-hmm. I right. didn't realize that she was using yeah, at least she, at least now at least I've forgotten that she was using it for correspondence mm-hmm. but not for a fiction. That's really interesting. Yeah. 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 She used it for quite a long time with her correspondence before she would jump over to the fiction. So. Okay. The other and I think you and I talked about this the other day. Um the other issue she had with technology was she got a television. Yeah, nineteen sixty one. She got one from uh the nuns. The nuns. But she had written a yeah, yeah, the memoir from Mary Ann, Ann. When she wrote yep, that. Yeah, yep. that is so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she liked watching car racing on it, didn't she? Yeah, well, she really she enjoyed watching the politics that were going on, right? Because that was yeah. a recent thing. You always heard it on the the radio, but you didn't get to see it. Um, and she just she thought it was a skit worthy of of her own writing <laughs> that you have these kind of politicians acting silly up on stage. Um, so she thought that was quite humorous, and then she and uh, she would watch comedies. She would watch comedy skits um, and get a kick out of it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, she said she was a little bit addicted. It would it would keep her from her writing sometimes. Yeah, so you, I, can, I, you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays. Sorry. Good thing she didn't have you know, Netflix. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Streaming? We would have lost Flannery <laughs> O'Connor. No, but, but that's it is pretty remarkable to think about, isn't it? Somebody who, mm-hmm. well, I mean, somebody who was Flannery O'Connor, you know, letting TV get yeah. in the way. Um, yeah, well, Walker Percy was the same way. I mean, really? I, I don't want to go on a tangent, but wa- yeah, Walker Percy was the same way. He he was addicted to watching um, the Hulk and soap operas, and he, <laughs> <laughs> he he had to stop in the middle of the day from his writing to to watch them because he just couldn't get away from them. Oh, that is so funny! I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for some really reason, that Hulk, seems which I think is weird. For some reason, that seems more surprising for. Um, Walker Percy then for Flannery O'Connor to me. Really? Like, I, wasn't really sh- I wonder why. Yeah, I, I wasn't shocked when she when I heard that she you know would watch W. C. Fields on TV. Yeah, that yeah. didn't seem too there shocking to me. But but <laughs> you know, I don't know. Walker Percy just seems. I, I just think of him as you know. I don't know. And, well, do you ever read Confederacy of Dunces? Yeah. Okay, so you know how he would watch the the dramas of reality TV, and then he would just yell at the screen that yeah. this is an abomination. You know, <laughs> um, that that to me is what I envision when I think of Walker Percy watching <laughs> soap operas. It's just holding a bourbon in one hand, going, "That's an abomination." <laughs> so. <laughs> maybe that may be right. Okay, so <laughs> Flannery O'Connor. Let's talk about her um, daily schedule. So oh she, yes, she was very rigorous about her schedule and um, told everyone in the household that she was not to be disturbed between the hours of um, pretty much nine to noon is what she kept. She went to, she got up in the morning with her mother and they listened to the radio and and drank coffee. And um, then they would go to mass and come back and her mother would go do work on the farm and Flannery would write Mm -hmm. facing away from the window. So no distractions, not even looking at the pond across the street, but facing inward towards her wardrobe so that she couldn't see anything except for her characters. For three hours, mm-hmm. then lunch at the Sanford three hours. House. That's right, yeah. 
Yeah, you're the biographer. You know all these <laughs> things probably better than I do. Yeah, see, um, she would ha- go have lunch and then, of course, come home and usually entertain guests or correspond in the afternoon. So yeah. she wasn't without a social life, but she would always talk about she could only write three hours in the morning and then she had to spend the rest of the day recovering, right? Yeah. Um, imagine if the rest of us kept that schedule. I wonder how much more productive we would be, more fruitful maybe. Maybe all of us are product-oriented, but not yeah, as right. fruitful as she is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, the the rigor with which she kept that was pretty remarkable. Um, yeah. And the other remarkable thing, uh, well, one of many remarkable things, was this mother who didn't really didn't exactly get what she was <laughs> up to, and yet was so mm-hmm. protective of Flannery's you know Flannery's time and. That, yeah. I think Regina is such a remarkable part of that story, um, mm-hmm. and and just the that loving relationship, which is not based on understanding exactly. It's just based on love, um, right? And um, uh, well, I think I think love of the Lord first and foremost for Regina. Mm-hmm. So of course she loved her daughter, but she she believed in her daughter's calling because the way yeah. she loved her loved the Lord. You know, they both loved the Lord so much that that was just kind of at the center of everything. Mm. I think that if they didn't have that, I'm not sure Regina would understand her calling as much, right? Yeah. And it's the it's the irrational divine sense of calling um, that people can't always get a hold of. And I don't think Regina understood it rationally, uh-huh. but she believed enough to believe in her daughter's sense of calling, which I, I just yeah. find wonderful. I love it in Flannery O'Connor's letters when she describes her mother you know, reading her books. <laughs> she'd, yeah, yeah. she'd come she in half an hour right. later and she'd be asleep on page nine. And, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, Mar- Marriott, her friend, uh, O'Connor's friend, was even like, you know, does your mother recognize herself in these characters? And Flannery's like, she don't read any of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and I, I, that's the only way you can get away with stuff. I mean, how many of us as writers have thought, oh, I could just turn this person into a character, but... I don't want them to recognize themselves. <laughs> yeah, um, and there's also that moment uh, when her uh, she was just worried sick that her aunt was going to be offended by her, um, I guess by wise blood. <laughs> and, and then what did she say? She said, uh, uh, she said the, uh, her her aunt just said, "I do not like this book." And yeah, and then you know, ten years later, she's going strong. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I I like to tell my students all the time when they're worried about what people think about their work, it's just really going to impinge upon what they're able to produce, right? They just, they, they can't worry about that. And even right. O'Connor said, you know, praise or censure is going to be bad for any writer. You can't, you just can't have too much of either. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you just got to keep writing. Yeah. Have you ever written fiction? I have, yes. Okay. Um I, I always say that if, if my talent for writing fiction was only used to pay for my college, then that was great. But when I was um, a teenager, I was said I'm bound to be a novelist. So I went to Pepperdine University to get a creative writing degree. Pepperdine, and, you said? Um, yeah, and I oh. won a, a full-ride scholarship in creative writing for four years. So, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so for me, it was just, you know, at, the, at least. I'm able to write stories enough to be able to pay for college, then I'm good. Yeah, um, but yeah. that's I, I still teach it. I still I still right now I write a lot of um, nonfiction, short fiction, poetry. So um, 
but of course I also do academic writing. So it's just a, I'm a hodgepodge. I'm a, I'm a writer as a verb. I don't know if I have a <laughs> one specific genre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just talking to Karen Swallow Pryor earlier today for an earlier episode. And uh, I love her. I know. And, and we were on the subject of, of, um, making the switch from academic writing to popular mm-hmm. writing. Um, yeah. What, what thoughts do you have on this, on switching from academic writing to, um, to, well, fiction? Oh man, uh, a lot, but it is, it is really, it is really tough to go back and forth. Um, you know, I at least have luminary heroes who did it. So you imagine people like C.F. Lewis and Tolkien, and yeah. you're like, okay, they did it. It can be done, right? So right. it is possible to do. Walker first would be another example, somebody who would do it. Um, but I think you have to have certain spaces, at least for me, that's what I do. Huh. Um, it sounds superstitious, but I only creatively write in certain spaces, and I only academically write in certain spaces. That's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, um, so I, I actually, I, I, maybe that sounds superstitious, but I, I don't think it actually is. I mean, I, it makes a lot of sense, really. I mean, I, we need it's it's basically a matter of liturgy, right? Of of habits right. And, and bodily habits, uh, because we you're not just a, a brain on a stick. You, you're a, you're a body. Yeah, yeah, and so that that's how I foster it. That I can get in a much more academic mind if I'm in my office, if I'm in a library. Um, if I'm just around my by books that way that I can kind of draw from and pull from other people's materials and make things make sense to people. And, mm-hmm. um, but if I'm doing creative and I'm kind of staring at that blank page, then for me, I need to be in like a coffee shop or I need to be outdoors where I just have sensory overload, which mm-hmm. sounds so strange. But if I can do sensory overload, then it keeps whatever part of my brain wants to get distracted on those things. And I focus on the writing. Huh. And it's focused on creating the material. So you need more distraction when you're writing, cre- well, creative <laughs> writing or fiction than you do when you're writing academic writing. Is that- yep. I, um, huh. Yeah, I, there's this novelist, Jocelyn Jackson, and she explained it really well. She said, you need your monkey brain. Like those of us especially who are extroverts like that, we need our monkey brain distracted so that we don't click to new sites or like go on the internet or something. Um, And so if my monkey brain is like paying attention to other people's conversations or um, listening to the music at the coffee shop or just smelling coffee, then I can actually have my other brain sit down and focus. Whereas if I'm in a quiet room, my monkey brain is like, you better give me something to play with (laughs) or I'm going to keep you from your work this whole time. Oh, that's funny. Uh, Sometimes I've been known to sit in a coffee shop and play coffee shop sounds on my earbuds. Oh really? No yeah. way! But well, because in a in the coffee shop sounds, you can't understand. You can tell people are talking, but you can't understand their words. Whereas yes, in a yeah. coffee shop, if somebody near me is saying oh. something vaguely interesting, <laughs> I'm, right. I want to know what's going on. I don't want to miss out on that. <laughs> that is, that is true, but I I do sometimes get my inspiration from it too. I'll I'll find myself typing away and I get distracted by conversation, but then I just write it down and keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, a good idea. Put it in, in its own little sticky note and like yeah. type the whole conversation out. <laughs> yeah, it's like Flannery O'Connor and her all her visits to the um, doctor becoming you know <laughs> fodder for revelation. Yeah, yeah she oh, said that yeah, story was her gift, like, was her reward for all right. her trips to the doctor. 
Yeah, you look at her letters. I mean, she records almost an exact revelation scene, except that nobody throws a book at the person. And you could just imagine uh-huh. she's the one sitting there being like, if only I could throw a book at that. It was a man in, in her letters, but <laughs> I could just throw a book at that man, you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and... Um... Another thing that's that's striking is how many of those. If you look at her letters and those those items that make their way into um, her stories, those little details, or or whether they make them into the letters into the letters or not. I'm sorry, into the stories or not. So many of those mm-hmm. most delicious details in her letters are things she got from her mother, things that her mother yes. saw on her rounds, and then would come home and, and report. Um, so that. There's another reason to appreciate Regina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Regina really does appear in in her fiction all over the place. And, and not just as an imposing figure, though she definitely writes about her foibles. But I think one of the great things about O'Connor is she's such a generous writer that she writes about people's imperfections as well as their good qualities. I mean, you never just have villains and saints in O'Connor's world. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you, can take, you can see that in her real life. She just didn't seem to see people that way you know yeah. she she makes fun of friends in her letters but then she also um sees their good attributes and when they appear in her stories sometimes they're the best person in the story you know yeah yeah i mean uh mariette lee i, I can't decide it's, it's yep. so hard to know how she felt about her it's not that hard she's <laughs> she really loved her but but she yeah just couldn't tell how she uh well, because she provided so much um, care, right? I mean, Marriott Lee, for people who don't know, like was one of her good friends in New York, but they were so different from one another because Marriott had left the South and, yeah. you know, put all that behind her. And she was, you know, a civil rights activist and she was going to extremes to, you know, expose injustice. And, and so a large sense, Marriott Lee was a spoilable. Right, like mm-hmm. against or foil against O'Connor, and they, they kind of played those roles with one another. And so O'Connor was able to turn her into yeah. more extreme version of herself <laughs> in, the, in the characters that she writes. You know, yeah. as Greg Fox and Julian, and yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'd never thought of this formulation before, but I think it might be really helpful to think about uh, O'Connor's view of the world. There were lots of people that she didn't know what she thought about them, but she knew how she felt about them. Oh, and Marriott Lee is—I'm sure she didn't know what to think about Marriott Lee, but she knew. She, yeah. But she knew what she felt about her. And I, I, and, uh, yeah. I think about—I think my there are a lot of people in my life that I don't know what to think about them, but I yeah, but <laughs> love them anyway. Yeah, well, sometimes you don't know. At least for Connor too, one of the things that she says in her essays all the time was she doesn't know what she thinks about anything until she writes it, yeah. and so. You know, she, writing was exploration and not not preaching. She's not giving a message. Um, right, the writing process is always helping her figure out what she thinks about these things, and I think that's important. Yeah, shifting out of Flannery O'Connor world. Um, okay, you're a pretty productive writer, and yet you are a professor. Um, mm-hmm. You uh, are raising kids, um, <laughs> and yet every time I turn around, there's some article that you've. Uh, and, and some you know, best I can, you know, a, a very well considered article. I mean, you know, something you've, thought, you. you've done good work on. And I think, how, oh, thank what? You. I mean, how, how is this happening? Um, yeah. So there's the question how is this happening? All this writing. Yeah, that you well, do. thank you. Um, 
Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I um, I definitely spend a lot of time doing it. I dedicate a lot of my time to doing it. And I think it is, you know, your podcast is appropriately named The Habit, right? Mm-hmm. So the same way that Flannery O'Connor wrote every single day, um, I, I do not go days without reading or writing. Um, in the same way that people probably, you know, really respect their workouts, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just, I might not be able to run a marathon the way other people can, but I can keep writing. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, I, I respect the habits that kind of continually lead to us being better and better writers. And um, and so I'm always, I, I read before bed religiously. Like I, uh-huh. it doesn't matter how tired I am, I'm reading at least a poem. Like I'm reading something all the time. Um, and You're that not reading Tom's Aquinas before bed. I'm not reading Thomas Aquinas. Um, I do, I, I do read a lot of poetry actually. And uh-huh. um, if I had to recommend anything for becoming a better writer to people, it would be to read poetry because it gives mm. you more words than you have in your disposal. Um, reading fiction, a lot of times, there's only so many ways you can tell someone. You know, you can say somebody walked. Um, <laughs> but when you when you read poetry, suddenly it's like, oh. There are more ways to say that than I even assumed or, yeah. you know, got used to reading in the novels. Um, and so poetry kind of opens, opens those floodgates a little bit. So I would say reading is a big deal to keep me writing. Um, I, I don't spend time online. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently added a Twitter account only because something that I published like a couple months ago Apparently, everybody was, like, up in arms about, and I had no idea how to see what they were talking about. I started receiving all these emails, and they were emailing me, like, why aren't you on Twitter reading this stuff? And I'm like, because that doesn't sound fun to me, but, um, you know, so I, I think that's really helpful when people talk about productivity. Yeah. You know, my life is just really not, it's not in the online world. I just don't live in the Gnostic universe. I try to live in, in the one that I can see and touch and smell as much as possible, um, and so when I write, I sit down and write and, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot of online stuff. I don't do a lot of social media stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and that it, you're DNA is how much time that saves, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, not doing those things. Um, and, and then I just, I don't really, um, I don't really mess around when I get to it. Like I, I'm a mom of three children. <laughs> I work full time. Um, I'm running a school. I, I founded a school in our area, which oh, takes okay. a lot of my time. So, um, so, you know, I remember the, the scripture, I don't know how many of your readers are Christians, but, um, for me, the scriptures talk about to, to whom has been given much, much more will be required. Yeah. And that's, that's what I think of all the time. It's just, yes, I seem to have a lot of things going on and a lot of balls in the air. Um, but if I keep juggling well, like, I'm not going to actually get rid of any of them and there's not going to be less of them. There's probably just going to be more. And uh-huh. Um, and that's just, that's a, that's a gift thing. Like the Lord's going to give me whatever it is that he needs to get done. And anything that I don't need to do, he's going to just take away and I'm just going to keep doing it. Um, so for me, it's a, it's part of a process of a way of living in, in certain habits that keep me going. Yeah. Well, thank you for that little summary. That was, I, I need to go, <laughs> go home and repent or something. <laughs> well, sorry if that was too too long of an answer. But, no, yeah. no, not at all. Um, and the the question I always end with, actually, no, I'm not going to end with this question just yet. We got to talk about the fact that 
that you have uh, roots in Warner Robins, Georgia. Oh, yeah. My parents met in high school in Warner Robins. And my hometown. got married in Warner Robins. Yeah. yeah well, I, I'm not going to be indulgent. It's a small town. Yeah. I'm not going to be self-indulgent and talk about Warner Robins on the Habit podcast, but uh, uh, that that was remarkable when I found out that you had Warner Robins uh, roots. Yeah, not too far from Milledgeville, right? Yeah, I know. Well, I understand the world of O'Connor. Like yeah. I was born there because I've lived there. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I typically end these conversations with the question: Which writers make you want to write? Yeah, well, Flannery O'Connor is a given. Okay. I have wanted to write like her since I was a little girl. Um, <laughs> a little girl? So, what? <laughs> yeah, I was a teenager. I was 15 the first time okay. someone handed me an O'Connor story, and I thought, yes, I'm going to do this forever. Okay, I was picturing so, eight-year-old Jessica. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, not, yeah, I've been wanting to write that long, but probably not like O'Connor. Um <laughs> And I would say um, some contemporary novelists that I read just for fun, they always give me inspiration. Um, most people aren't familiar with Gina Oaksner. Um, mm-hmm. And she is a Pacific Northwest novelist. And she writes about usually experiences in Eastern Europe and Russia and places uh-huh. that are kind of cold and on the margins. Um, uh-huh. But her writing is lyrical and beautiful and she deals with issues of life and death and it's just lovely so the necessary grace to fall would be a the good necessary place to grace to fall yeah okay with gina um people probably think that i i work for her the number of times i've recommended that book <laughs> um but and then uh life anger uh-huh. i love virgil wander so i i thought that was a masterful work that reminded me so much of walker percy and charles portis and i thought this is so much fun yeah. So it's a great summer read. I've been recommending that book to everybody this summer. Yeah, the, um, I the, go a very these, cold like, summer read, but but a great. Yeah, like, yeah, cool right. In the heat of summer. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's it's you know I, I always try to pick like a favorite book of the year, and right now that probably is my my favorite book of the year. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it would be would be his book, and then Michael O'Brien. If you don't know Michael O'Brien, I really enjoy Catholic novelists. I love uh-huh. writers who are dealing with ultimate questions and you know, regarding life, both in its concrete particularity, but also transcendent. And um, so Michael O'Brien does that. He's a 21st century novelist who writes about the world with its unseen as well as its seen reality. Mm. It's it's amazing. So Father Elijah is the first one that I would recommend for that. All right. Duly noted. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Jessica, thank you so much for being here. I uh, have, have loved having somebody to talk to about Flannery O'Connor and um and I'm I, I love watching your career I love see, whenever I see your name on an article I I'm so glad to I'm so glad it's there and I especially look forward to seeing what you're going to do um with uh uh the heathen why do the heathen rage <laughs> I have a hard time with that title for some reason yeah uh, time twister yeah and um but I can't wait to see uh, and, and 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 let me just say thank you for giving that that story life to or bringing it to a, to a wider audience. I know there are a lot of hard decisions involved in that, and uh, so thank you for taking that on. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, this was fun. This is the best way I could spend my time is talking about O'Connor. Okay, great. Well, I hope we can talk again soon. Sounds good. All, All right. right. Bye. bye. 
The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.